Welcome back, Nick, to another week. Yeah! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Podcast. My name is Podcast. This is my co-host. Podcast. Podcast. Podcast, Podcast. No, just kidding. That's yeah. not the name of the show. That was a goof. No, the, the, the real name of the show is A Career in Film. I am Nick DeRiso. And I'm Zach D'Antonio. And this is the show where every week we pick a director uh, who did a film that we really love, and then we do a deep dive on their filmography to see if there are any hidden gems or uh, terrible secrets hidden in there. So this week we're doing a guy that maybe some of you don't know his name. Joe Johnston, uh, a very diverse filmmaker who's honestly had a decent Hollywood career going all the way back to the late 70s, really. Yeah, for sure. Well, do you want to get into his career before he started uh, directing film or, or like his I, background I wanna, or whatever? I think I'm going to touch on it on the way, way back machine. I, I think it's worth noting. Do it. Alright, um, so Johnston was born May 13th, 1950 in Austin, Texas. Uh, grew up in Texas. He went to California State University for college. On the West Coast, this is where he began his career. His first credit is as a concept artist and effects technician on Star Wars A New Hope. So, like, what a great first movie to be on. Yeah, um, I heard that movie did pretty well. Yeah, but... Ever since then, he he is an ILM guy. Um, Industrial Light and Magic, which is, I think, probably, like, the most well-known special effects house. Maybe, like, Weta Workshop, because of Peter Jackson and Lord of the Rings, has gotten a little bit more a little bit more of a household name. But ILM are, like, the OGs for special effects. Um, yeah. And, and digital effects. And so he worked ILM on in the effects department for Empire Strikes Back, Battlestar Galactica... Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, Return of the Jedi, Temple of Doom. Uh, this work kind of led to him working his way through ILM and Lucasfilm. He worked on Howard the Duck. He worked on Willow. He worked on Always, the Spielberg joint uh, that everyone forgets the Spielberg directed, um, and the Iron Giant. So he was really a... I, I, I don't think you can call him a protege of Spielberg and Lucas like you can like um, Robert Zemeckis... I think was a little bit, um, and Bob Gale, the guys who did Back to the Future, were kind of like Spielberg's protégés, but he was really, I, it sounds like he was a friend of both of them. It's interesting that you bring up that timeline, because, you know, you're talking about, when you're talking about the earlier stuff, you know, your Star Wars, your Raiders, stuff like that, that's all before he started directing film, but then you get to, like, Iron Giant. Iron Giant is after he had a few movies under his belt. So, like... I wonder, like, do you are you familiar with what the timeline is of where he started directing his own shit? Yeah, so 1989, which pretty much puts him after all of the big Spielberg stuff. And then one of the uh, big things is George Lucas was a huge champion of his. George Lucas basically paid for him to take a sabbatical to go get his master's degree. As, like, you've been an outstanding employee and also a good friend, and I believe in your talent it's time for you to get out of the shop and go back to school and try and advance your career. So George Lucas kind of offered him that. He never finished his master's degree. He said that he broke too many rules, so he dropped out. But yeah. after that, he started being a fill-in director. And I think he, like, it, when he was a fill-in director, he bobbled back and forth 
still doing some like you know we're talking about he was like head of the art department on some of these films like really big behind the scenes roles and then once he switched to just directing directing and was i think getting his own projects and creating his own projects i think that's when he stopped doing all of the art department stuff okay yeah i mean that 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 makes sense it's interesting you know that he's that he worked under spielberg um you know for as long as he did because when i look at his career i look at it and go yeah he's kind of a He's kind of a poor man Spielberg. Absolutely. That was one of the things that I kind of want to talk about in this because it's also interesting. I think you have to look at, he is a guy that has been a fill-in director so many times in his career that uh, I think when he gets to originate his own project, they are much more Spielbergian. But we can kind of talk about that. We'll have to deal with that on a movie-by-movie basis because I don't know um, uh, which ones are you know, totally his babies and which ones are more, uh, fill in. I, I've got most of them tracked. Um, but the Spielberg connection is important because he is a friend of Steven Spielberg's so much so that one of his movies is a direct sequel to a Spielberg film. Right. Um, but let's start at the very first film he did. That's 1989's Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Um, which I would prefer you to talk about a little bit because this was a movie that I never liked as a kid. Um, I feel like that's that that's kind of a running theme on this podcast is we'll be talking about some like classic children's film and you'll be like, I don't know. When you were a kid, did you just watch Indiana Jones on repeat and that was it? Like, what, what, what what's your fucking deal, man? <laughs> it, I mean, it was a lot of Indiana Jones on repeat. Um, <laughs> but no, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was very particular because I went back and I watched like some scenes from it. And I remember the two things I didn't like about Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was one... I thought it was an ugly movie, like, and I didn't know what that was as a kid, but it was the special effects were, you know, really cool at the time, but me seeing it in, like, the mid-90s, which is probably when I first saw it, I was just kind of like, eh, this seems a little fake and falsy to me, um, and it's also, it is not a very pretty-looking movie. Like, when I was a kid, I was into for lack of a better term, like, really gorgeous-looking movies. Like, there's a reason I love the Indiana Jones movies. It's because they look like a comic book. Like, they are gorgeously lit. Big scenery, stuff like that. And Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is a suburban, shadowy indie movie, basically. Yeah, I disagree with a lot of what you just said, but sure. Um, <laughs> let me get into the, the, the fucking plot outline of it, and then we can get a little bit more into... Then we can fight. All right, debating the merits of the fucking movie. Um, but yeah, so it's it, it, it's a family film. Rick Moranis is a inventor um, who has been working on the shrink machine. Uh, he's like one of those failed inventors, you know, um, not very particular. Got a lot of Rube Goldbergs around the house. Yeah, it's what, you know, th- there was a lot of movies in this era that loved the Rube Goldbergs to going on early in the film and this is in that category for sure um and then through happenstance his two children and the two neighbors children get accidentally shrunk by the machine and uh, through some circumstances they end up in the backyard and it's like a jungle and they have to try and get back inside and find their dad so that you know they can be like hey you shrunk us um 
And, you know, Rick Moranis can save the day by reversing whatever he did. Um, overall, I would say, as a family film, it's I consider it kind of mid-level. Um, it's I think that Rick Moranis' performance is, is ever likable. Uh, and he's uh, that it's sort of par for the course with with Rick Moranis in that era. I'd say is he can bring a lot of uh, a lot of heart to a concept that's a little bit silly on its uh, on its basis. Um, I do think some of the effects are very good. Uh, there's definitely moments where I do agree with you, Zach. Where when it comes to like there's periods of time where they're spending a large chunk of time in this in this backyard and. The, the movie just kind of has this dark look. But I do think that when it's juxtaposed with suburbia and the subplots that go on with um, both Rick Moranis and, and his wife, along with uh, Matt Frewer, uh, who is the, yeah. the neighbor, the father neighbor, um, and sort of their search for these missing children, um, I think that, that it balances relatively well. It's, I, I remember as a kid being very into some of the, you know, the, the, the large objects, you know, where they camp out in the Lego when they befriend the ant. I remember is it like that, that resonating rather well. Um, I, I remember like in, in Disney World and MGM, they had that like, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids movie set. And as a kid, I Playground, really enjoyed yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so... Like, as a movie, I think overall it's fine. It, it doesn't have a ton of replay value, oddly enough. Uh, I think the sequels end up being a little bit more watchable, though not because they're better. Um. Well, this is what I want to kind of touch on. So my second point of why I didn't like this film is I don't like the kid characters. And Honey, I, Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves, which is the second sequel, I believe. Yeah, it's the third one. It's a direct-to-video. Direct yeah, but I always preferred it much more because I like Rick Moranis' character so much. I want to see him going through those crazy hijinks, not the kids that, like, I, I don't remember any of their names. I didn't really bond with any of them as a kid as characters. So that was the other point I wanted to make is just, like, the second reason that I didn't like it was the kid characters going on the adventure, not Rick Moranis. Honey, I blew up the kids. I, or Honey, we blew up ourselves or whatever. Honey, we shrunk ourselves. Honey, I, honey I, we shrunk ourselves is the third one. The second one's Honey, I blew up the kid, which just takes the concept of the original and does the opposite and makes it a giant Godzilla baby. Yeah, I, I also don't like that one at all. But the third one, I, I like a lot. It's okay. a, uh, the third one is a bad movie. Like I think you and I watched it like two or three years ago, maybe. Yeah. You know, as late 20-year-olds sitting down and watching a director video third film in a franchise. That's the type of thing we do. Yeah. Um, but I, I still just enjoyed it a lot. Like I like, um, him and I like the other dad. Uh, I forget that big guy's name. It's a character actor. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I yeah. don't know. My, top of my head. But I prefer them going on the adventure. Funny so story. That was the other thing. The late, uh, the, the daughter in honey, we shrunk ourselves is, has been getting, uh, seen a bit recently on that uh hbo documentary about that cult because she mm. was in that cult the daughter was one i haven't holy shit yeah i haven't watched it yet so literally i've been holding off i've got like episodes on last podcast on the left where they keep talking about it and i'm like i'm, I'm gonna watch this eventually i'll be honest it to, for me it's a lot more unpleasant than fun but like it like i watched a couple episodes of it and i was just like yeah sex cult oh like 
Um, yes, we but, are a... Sex cults are bad. That is our official podcast stance. But I do think they are interesting in documentary form when viewed from afar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, and that's where, you know, we, you and I have talked to, about, you know, my view on documentary versus docuseries and, and your view of, of them as well. Yeah. We kind of live on opposite stances where I find docuseries to be a little bit bloated. But anyway, we're getting off topic. The point is, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids... Uh, I give it a, a a soft thumbs up. Zach doesn't. Yeah, I I give it like a it's like a two for me. Um, but the important thing to know about this, when looked at the larger capacity of Joe Johnston's career, so Joe Johnston was brought in um, to replace the original director Stuart Gordon. Stuart Gordon is the guy who did the Reanimator series, and he left for I I have read things where it was creative differences, budgetary differences, and then the famous story is that it was um, he left on the grounds of he wanted to call the movie Teeny Weenies, and the studio wanted to change the movie to the title of Grounded, and he they fought over that, and that was the creative differences, so he walked on the project. What a weird creative difference, and also, like, but what? those are both awful titles. There was a third one they went through that was terrible before they got Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which is a superior title. To the thing all. with Honey, I Shrunk um, the Kids is, like, it's a it's a straightforward title. Um, but that's also... It's a very 80s title. Like, that's not a title that would happen now. Like, it reminds me of uh, the, the mid-80s movie um, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, or maybe that was early 90s, I don't remember. But, like, it's around the same yes. time where it's like... You know, it's almost like the title's almost a Goosebumps book, you know? But it, like, <laughs> where it just explains exactly what it is. I think that sounds better than Teeny Weenies, which is just, I don't know, weird. Um, or and Grounded is nothing. Grounded, well, you know, I get it, because the kids get grounded and they're, they're on the ground because they're tiny. It's stupid. It's stupid. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't resonate. But this was a hit, so good job, Joe Johnston. It spawned two sequels. Um, I'm good to move on to the next one, if you are okay. Yeah, I'm fine with that. So next up is 1991's The Rocketeer, um, which is based off of a graphic novel. So Joe Johnston, hired as a, you know, last-minute fill-in director. This is a project that went through, like, seven years of development hell, and he was brought in after, I think, one or two other directors had given up on the project. And he kind of pushed it through to the finish line. So it is a lot him, but it is still him kind of being a second or third choice. Um, but it's based off of the graphic novel. Uh, I have never read it. I literally, uh, this, I watched this for the first time about a week ago. Because my dad always said that it sucked. So, like, I never rented it as a kid. Um, <laughs> and you know what? I kind of have to agree with my dad at some points. I, I think he was too harsh on the movie. Um, cause it is somewhat enjoyable. It is, it was made in 1991, which is a couple years early for this kind of a, like, 20s and 30s serial type superhero, which is what the Rocketeer is. Um, or I guess Rocketeer is Nazis, so 40s and 50s, but it's got the same kind of a feel of dick tracy the shadow and the phantom which all came out uh, i think dick tracy might have come out around the same time but shadow and phantom were later and i think it's closer to those movies 
so I don't know. Maybe if this came out like four years later, it actually would have been a much bigger hit. But the good things about the movie, I think it's got that fun adventure romp to it. Um, they're very clearly aiming for like an Indiana Jones homage feel. And there are certain elements that really do capture that and are well. Um, and the aviation stuff is generally pretty fun. Um, the side cast of villains also is just, you know, uh, it's Paul Sorvino. And I forget the the guy from Miller's Crossing that I love. The Italian guy who's yeah. just, he's never not sweaty. Yeah, the, yeah, I know who you're talking about. I don't know his name. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you've got great villains, and they're headed by Timothy Dalton, who was, at the time, James Bond. And he is doing this Errol Flynn swashbuckling, I'm a movie action star, but I do my own stunts, and I'm a secret Nazi spy. And he's, he's doing the Treat Williams thing, where everyone else is playing this a little bit too straight, and he understands what kind of movie he's in, and he's just chewing scenery. So I absolutely love it. And Timothy Dalton always gets a bad rap, and I think he's a really good actor. So I think there are some redeemable qualities in this. Um, the reason it's not a hit and is a flop, I kind of push solely on Joe Johnston, because Joe Johnston was advocating for the casting of Billy Campbell to be the Rocket Man. The studio wanted, like, Johnny Depp, and Johnny Depp was, like, the big number one name, but they went through, like, a couple other people that all went on to have careers and are, like, current working actors in Hollywood. Was Johnny Depp Campbell, a big deal in 91? Yeah, this is him, like, uh, I want to say this is him coming off of Benny and June. Oh, yeah. And, like, yeah. he's in that... He's in that phase where he's, like, interesting. Okay, yeah. And he's got those heartthrob looks. This is post um, 21 Jump Street. And uh, he's a big up-and-coming name. And they were targeting guys like that. And I think you need someone that has a little bit more charm to them. Johnny Depp probably wouldn't have been right. Because this does need, like... The clearest analogy, you know, I put all of those movies in the same category with Phantom and the shadow but what this really needs is brendan fraser and the mummy that's who they need in the lead of this role and there's definitely some aesthetic and character parallels between rick o'connor and the rocketeer it just doesn't happen billy campbell's kind of a wash of a an actor and it's sad because he's got jennifer Connolly and alan arkin and all of the villains around him and he just kind of brings the movie down so you you were rolling here, so I didn't get into my opinion of this movie. Um, uh, yeah, shoot, dude, I think it sucks. I think it's awful. And oh, like no, and this was a movie that I, you know, admittedly it's been a long time since I've seen it, so it's tough for me to, um, you know, get get hardcore into it. This was a movie that when I was a kid, I kept trying to watch and I kept falling asleep. Oh, mm-hmm. Like I could never get hooked into this fucking movie, and then I sat down and I watched it just to. There was a period of time in college where I was, like, going back and trying to rewatch any movie I couldn't have sat through in the past and just forcing myself to finish it. And, yeah, this was a complete and utter slog. And I'm in 100% in agreement with you where Billy Campbell is really tough for me to watch. Um, and I don't, I don't find him the least bit interesting. And I think the movie takes way too long to get going. So, like... Well, there may be redeemable qualities to, you know, the villains and some of the action. Yeah, I think this movie's a complete and utter mess. 
Well, it certainly uh, did not make his money. So the movie made um, $46 million on a $35 million budget. However, because Disney was putting this as like it's going to be its next big thing, they spent about $35 million on advertising and then probably close to that amount more on merchandising. And it just it didn't hit in America. It didn't hit overseas. Um, there were sequels planned for this, but everything got scrapped. And now I, I guess it has cult status to yeah. some people. No, I remember, like, that was the thing. The, one of the reasons that I ended up watching it as a kid, because it's not the kind of movie I would inherently go after, but I, I remember that, like, my dad had been hearing on, like, morning radio shows that it was this good kids movie people didn't know. Like, it was it was a thing. People were into The Rocketeer. I mm-hmm. wasn't one of those people. And it, it makes sense. Like, it has interesting iconography. It certainly has some big set pieces. Um, if I can say something, you know, Joe Johnson really missed the ball on Billy Campbell, but I think his understanding of transferring a graphic novel where he's got the Nazis and the big Zeppelin finale at the end and the actual Rocketeer helmet, that was one of the things um, that I read he very much fought for. Uh, Disney wanted to change it to like a round space helmet, and he fought very hard for the actual Rocketeer design with the like tail on the back of the helmet, which, you know, that's... That's the Rocketeer. That's the silhouette. Like, you absolutely need that. So he was right in some of those aspects. The movie just doesn't gel. I can't stress enough. That movie takes way too long to get going. It really does. Um, But that setback forced him into his next project, which is kind of a thankless role. So in 1994, (laughs) he directed the live-action sequences in The Pagemaster. So let me take you back to the year of 1994, back when Ted Turner ran everything. And <laughs> Ted Turner decided, since you know he was doing the environmental stuff with Captain Planet and all that, he decided it was also important to get kids to read, which, sure. Um, so he got some celebrities, and Macaulay Culkin, the biggest child actor in the world at the time, and went, yeah, let's put a movie where we throw you into a book world and you meet books and stuff. And that's the movie. So like they, Macaulay Culkin's this scared boy and he goes into book world and then he comes out and he has a sense of adventure and he also likes books. And that's the movie. Now, the majority of this film is animated. Also, I feel like this movie is like 60 minutes long. I know it's a full-length feature <laughs> film, but it's just a very fast movie. Like, a decent amount of the movie is animated. Um, you know, you've got Whoopi Goldberg and Patrick Stewart doing voices of the books. I want to say there's some other celebrities that pop in there. Um, but the live-action scenes pretty much consist of, I want to say, maybe 15 minutes of total material. And yeah. it's Macaulay Culkin being too scared to go in a treehouse, and Ed Begley Jr. just hating his son. And then he tells him to go to the hardware store, but it rains, and he goes into a library, and he meets Christopher Lloyd, a.k.a. sort of creepy librarian, who's like, ooh, mm, you like books, huh? And Macaulay Culkin's like, no, I don't. Which, all right. And then he's just like, oh, okay, um, do whatever you want then. And then Book World happens, and then he comes out of Book World, and he's adventurous. So, 
That's what Joe Johnston did. Uh, so two things I want to mention. One, we should give credit. Um, the guy who directed the animation sequences, his name is, I hope I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this pronunciation, Pixoti Hunt. Um, but he is like a long-term animator. But the real villain of this movie was the producer, David Kirshner. So um, this movie's a total flop. I really, like as a kid, I, I thought it was fine. Like, it's not the prettiest animation. I was never a big fan of Ted Turner's studio. Um, but David Kirshner um, changed the plot of the movie during production, during the animation, which led to the budget skyrocketing. So they were never going to make their money back on this to begin with. And then afterwards, he tried to take sole authorship over the movie, leading to, at the time the largest and most expensive investigation by the WGA on um, behalf of one of its members for contractual rights. Because the WGA, when it comes to animation, is like, sometimes they dabble in it, sometimes they don't. And because this movie was part live-action animation, they felt like they could kind of step in. Um, so this movie's a mess legally and on the creative side, and it's reflected on the screen. Because the it, it feels way too short. It feels kind of nonsensical. It's just, you know, Ted Turner was like, give me all of the free IP you can possibly can and let me jam it into this movie, even if it doesn't totally make sense. Yeah. So Johnston actually disowns the film. Like, he leaves it off of his own resume. And I think it's right that he should. He didn't fully direct it. He just did the live action sequences, of which there were a few. And he said, like, you know, they cut it down by about 15 minutes. So, yeah. Well, I don't think that movie needed 30 minutes of live-action scenes, to be honest. So, that's okay. Yeah. I do love the opening scene, though. It's just Ed Begley Jr. just laying in bed and being like, I hate my son. <laughs> that scene's hilarious. He's just like, he's scared of everything, and I just want to I wanna, I wanna get him to play baseball or just do anything. He's just, he doesn't do anything. I hate him. So uh, I would like to move on if it's okay with you because the next movie is the one that we kind of chose Joe Johnston for. Yeah. So 1995, he comes back with a huge hit. 1995's Jumanji. Cue the drum music faintly in the background. Yeah, my I was going to do it, but I was my brain was just doing the Terminator music and that's not the same movie. Um, but yeah, Jumanji's great. I absolutely love it. If you want to talk about like movies that I watched over and over as a kid, Jumanji was one of them. Uh, basically, Jumanji is the story of a kid finds a magical board game. He starts playing it and gets sucked into the game. About 30 years later, some other kids find the board game, start playing. Kid comes out of the game as old Robin Williams, and they have to finish playing the game to get all of the magical, spooky, scary stuff that comes out of the game to go away. And Jumanji is this interesting, like, 40s, 50s jungle aesthetic to the game. So, you know, there's all kinds of different animals coming out. There's hunters, there's poisonous plants, there's a uh, El Nino flood that comes out of it, a giant crocodile, and it's so much fun. And again, working, going back to his roots with ILM, they developed uh, two new, very important pieces of technology for the movie. 
Um, they did work on the animals' faces so they could animate, like, the monkeys and give them personality and stuff. And then this was one of the first big advances in digital fur technology, which has gone on to be perfected and so important for, like, we covered um, John Favreau. Like, you don't have The Lion King without this as its groundwork for digital fur. Thanks, Jumanji! You know, I think it's a really good premise. It's pretty simple, but you can expand and build a lot of great set pieces off of it. And Joe Johnson does a really good job of blending live action and digital parts. Um, I would say, you know, he's dabbled in this before in his career, but this is probably the first time that I think he really nails it. And this is, I also think, one of the first movies where you start to see that Spielberg aesthetic and influence come in. Same with kind of George Lucas. I would say it's his strongest in that in that realm for sure. Oh yeah. A couple of things that I just want to mention that I really like about this movie in particular. There's a couple performances that I think are fantastic. Like Robin Williams is is wonderful as always, and Bonnie Hunt is underrated as always. But uh, I want to, in particular, talk about. Uh, I'm a big fan of the performance by uh, British actor Jonathan Hyde, who doubles yes. up doubles up playing uh, Robin Williams' character's father along with the hunter who's after him in the game. And then also I want to throw out uh, David Allen Greer as well, uh, who plays the police officer, um, who also has a a history with Robin Williams' character as well. Both of these are very unique performances. They're also really good performances because they have two different, very different character components. Um, that like it's it's a, they're both very much dual roles, um, and one of which is uh, David Allen Greer, where he goes from his demeanor as a young person to his demeanor as an older person, and then Jonathan Hyde's just straight up playing two different characters, but both show incredible acting range, and they're some of the most memorable characters in the movie. I also think we should just talk about Robin Williams for a second because he was my hero as a kid, and this was one of the first serious roles I ever saw him in. Because the movie has inherent humor in it, but it is not a Robin Williams comedy as a movie. Um, Actually, he turned down the role originally, and they kind of tweaked it a little bit for him because he was hesitant to kind of branch out in this direction. Uh, Because, you know, he's not playing a bunch of crazy characters. He's not doing big riffs of improv. It's kind of like, in my mind, the thing that put him up is like, no, Robin Williams could be a movie star that just opens a movie. You don't yeah, have sure. to have the... Sh- he doesn't have to have all of the shtick that goes with him. Which, I mean, he still brings that wonderful energy that Robin Williams has to this movie. But, yeah, I oh, mean, God. It's, it's true. He's not doing impressions, you know? But, uh, I mean, he's so funny. I will never forget till I am old the No More Banana Leaves line. Yeah. Where, like, he comes out of the board game, he's old, and he goes to the bathroom for the first time. And, like, it took me as a kid a second to realize what he was talking about. But it's just the funniest delivery and i i don't know why i think about it probably once a month i like to, i like to see where he runs outside and he's and he's yelling at the monkeys and then like the police officer staring at him david unger staring at him and he's just like monkeys <laughs> uh, anyway yeah but we should talk about so joe johnston was actually a little little bit hesitant to cast robin williams and showing his versatility as director and robin williams just incredible work ethic as an actor they kind of settled on this interesting middle ground where because the script kind of has to be pretty tight for the sequences in the game to unfold what joe johnston did is they would always do one extra take of every scene so that robin williams could get his improv riffing off 
And, you know, sometimes they used it, sometimes they used a little part of it, sometimes they scrapped it all together, but everyone said that it kept what was, you know, a very effects-heavy shoot pretty light. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this was a huge success. Everyone knows that it's got tons of sequels, but uh, this movie has such a near and dear place in my heart. It is, if it is on TV, I will turn it on and watch. I love it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great movie. I don't know. There's not much really to say about it. I feel like most kids have seen Jumanji. It was, uh, it was certainly a staple in my home. And oh yeah, my I friends. think I think we've said plenty about Jumanji. Cool. Uh, let's talk about a movie that maybe people haven't seen that I also really really love. Uh, 1999's October Skies, his next film. Um, this one's all but, you. I was going to ask you, so have you seen this? I have, but it's been a very long time and I don't recall much about it. So this was a movie that I first saw in like my sixth grade science class and I was completely raptured with it then. I'd like, I, you know, it's very rare that you get shown a movie in school and it makes a big effect on you. Um, and this one, I you know, I watched it probably like a couple times after seeing it in school, and have continued to revisit it over the years. Uh, it's based on the story of a real guy, Homer Hickam, um, and his memoirs called Rocket Boys. Story is basically a kid who is uh, from a coal mining town, is really interested in science, particularly rockets and rocket engineering. Uh, so he starts making some model rockets. He uh, has some apprehension with his father who is basically the foreman of the coal mine, which is the town's lifeblood. Father is played by Chris K Cooper, who kills it as just the disapproving dad. Always does. Oh, God, he's so good in this movie. Um, but the story really comes with Jake Gyllenhaal, who's playing Homer Hickam. He's trying to pursue his academic interests, and he's getting basically opposition from everyone around him but he has one really uh great teacher who is a champion of his played by laura dern and he continues after you know uh having to go work in the mine for a little bit because his father gets injured after being accused of a wildfire after all of these basically uh obstacles to him pursuing his academic dream he goes to a national science fair wins it and gets a scholarship to get out of the town. So it's kind of taking like that, uh, you see it in like sports movies, the like, this is my shot to get out of here. But it's applying it to a really interesting backdrop where it's not like a football town or anything, it's a coal mining town. And instead of it being sports, it's rocket science, which is something that was very new and very niche at the time. So it's like a sports movie for nerds. That's exactly what it is. And that's why it works so fucking well. Oh, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm into that. <laughs> but it was also, it was my first intro to Jake Gyllenhaal. I think he's really good in the lead. Um, the supporting cast of Rocket Boys. Um, there are, like, guys that look familiar. The most familiar one is uh, the Shermanator from American Pie is one of them. Yeah, okay, yeah. But yeah, it, it, it's basically just, you've got a really interesting dynamic with him, basically his thirst for knowledge, but then you've also, the heart of the story is a guy that's just trying to make his dad proud, and his dad really not understanding it, and, you know, it's never treating Chris Cooper like he's a capital V villain, it's just a guy who doesn't understand his kid, and the very grounded and well-realized world of this 
insular mining town really hammers that home that it's not that he's a bad guy it's just he's going up against tradition and i think that's a really interesting dynamic for them to explore yeah for sure it's been a long time but i i do need to revisit this one for sure honestly i watch it like every couple of years when it comes on like a netflix or a prime or something i just find it a relaxing watch but yeah, uh, it was a, a smaller movie. It was a $25 million budget. It only grossed about $35 million. So not a hit, but it got some pretty good reviews. And uh, it certainly has lived on in my mind. Well, I mean, it's definitely... I mean, the, the time I watched it originally was in college. And um, my, my roommate, Dan, was watching it. And it was a movie he grew up on. So... Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I joined him and watched it. And remember being like, yeah, okay. And that was my reaction. But, you know, it was college. I was probably on my way to the bar. Like, you know, I need to sit down and, and reinvestigate. Yeah. It's just a good movie. It's it's a comfort food movie for me. And maybe that's just because I saw it when I was in sixth grade. Um, but the success of this kind of helps uh, elevate him to his next film. Uh, which is taking over for his buddy Steven Spielberg for Jurassic Park 3. Yeah. So, the story behind Jurassic Park 3 is that after the first one, they were kicking around ideas for what The Lost World would be. Because uh, if I'm remembering my history correctly, there was not a book, and Michael Crichton had to come up with the story for The Lost World. Yeah. And Spielberg was on the fence about directing it. He said that, you know, he might want to do a second one, but he certainly wouldn't do a third one. And Joe Johnston was like, look, if you're not going to do any more of these give me a call because I want to go to Jurassic Park. And so after the second one, Spielberg's like, I'm done. I'm out. It's time for a new director to take over. And Joe Johnston was like, uh, remember you promised me something. So Joe Johnston took over the pre-production leading into production for Jurassic Park three was a nightmare. And I think that shows in the final product because this is the lowest grossing Jurassic Park movie out of any of the films. Uh, basically they had a ton of rewrites before production started and all through filming, they never had a finished script once. Honestly, based on Jurassic Park three, that kind of makes sense. And do you want to kind of give, uh, the basic plot synopsis, Nick? Sure. The very short, simple plot is, uh, the, they got to go rescue, um, William H. Macy and Tia Leone's kid, they're like a wealthy couple and their kid went skydiving or something, right? Something, I don't fucking remember. It was like parasailing? Yeah, parasailing, that's it. And the kid went into the Lost World Island and so uh, Sam Neill, they got Sam Neill back and Sam Neill is going to, uh, you know, Find, uh, sorry, I'm getting my phone's going up. Sam Neill's going to find Tia Leone and William H. Macy's kid, and they join him. So they got a team together, and they're going to go rescue a child. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you. I saw this one a lot as a kid. I feel like it was a TNT staple that they just played this thing into the ground. Because I don't have a big memory of The Lost World, but I know this one pretty well. Um, there are a couple things I really don't like. First off, all new dinosaurs suck. They had the T-Rex. The T-Rex is the baddest motherfucking dinosaur. They always, every new movie tries to have a new big bad. And uh, this one totally fails. 
um, they, the Spinosaurus. Yeah, it's that, that's a that's an issue that the Jurassic Park series has had since its original, um, mm-hmm. and because the you know the T Rex was was such a fantastic major dinosaur, and their consistent work to try and up the. Um, up the ante with the dinosaurs never works. Nothing's cooler than the T-Rex. And so, I would say, like, Lost World, I don't know if they really get super deep into other dinosaurs, like other major big ones. Uh, no, because isn't it, like, two T-Rexes and a baby T-Rex? Yeah, I mean, that seems right. The Lost World sucks, Um, but, like, it's like I don't have a lot to say about it because it's just not that good. Um, Jurassic Park 3, I think, is a better movie than The Lost World. Um, Interesting. I, I mean, haven't watched The Lost World in a while, so I honestly, I, I, I would put them, as a kid watching them, I know I ranked Jurassic Park 3 last, but I also haven't watched The Lost World probably in a decade. Yeah, it, so like, for the Jurassic Park series for me, the original Jurassic Park is amazing. Uh, every other Jurassic Park goes into the category of this didn't need to be made. So like, understand that level of separation that I have. But I will go Jurassic World and Jurassic World. I think is the other one that's like semi passable in a. This is a total cash grab, but it gives me sort of what I want, sort of way. And then it's Jurassic Park three, The Lost World, and then whatever garbage sequel to Jurassic World there was. So this is middle of the pack for me. This one's hard for me because of two big things. The The first one is the raptor subplot, which I don't care about. Um, I think the basic premise of them doing a rescue mission onto this island is interesting. And I think that works as a premise to get you back to Jurassic Park, sure. Sure. But they do a lot of stuff where like they're trying to harvest velociraptor eggs, and then the velociraptors track them and hunt them down. And then Sam Neill's got this whole thing. This is where they introduce that the raptors can vocalize and talk with each other. That they then, I think, are trying to expand upon in the new movies. But, like, I just don't care about it. Like, velociraptors hunt in the pack in the first one. That's all I needed to know. They're interesting dinosaurs just in the first one. That's all you needed to give me. Because I understand velociraptors, small, scary, hunts in a pack. Great. I mean... They're also, I mean, Velociraptors were very heavily explored in the first movie, so. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. I don't need the extra science stuff, and it leads to a subplot where the, you know, you've got the big bad Spinosaurus, but then you've also got the, Duras- the, the Velociraptors that are after them because one of the guys on the expedition steals eggs from the Velociraptor nest. Yeah. So I don't care about any of that. Um, I also don't like... The setup is that the family tricks Dr. Grant back to the island. Um, they're saying that, like, they're going to do, like, a, a plane flyover. They don't tell him about the real rescue mission or something. And I've always just hated that because I was like, you could find a reason to get Dr. Grant back to the island that's better. Um, and you could probably also do one to get Laura Dern back on the damn adventure as well. Like, that, they go hand in hand to me. Well, Laura Dern is... She shows up in the movie, but they, they they divorce them. Yeah, so this movie... Jurassic Park 3 breaks up fucking Sam Neill and Laura Dern. What And that bastards. would have been fine if the movie no. was about them getting back together in on the island, having to survive. That would have been pretty no. simple. I could have taken it. Nope, fuck that. That is That goes against the entire mythology of the first one. You can't just, like... 
Sequels do this shit all the time where it's the whole arc at the end of the first one is uh, Sam Neill learning to appreciate children so now him and Sadler can have kids together. And like, then this movie's just like, oh, by the way, that, that never happened and also they're divorced. Like, it just makes the first one meaningless in terms of character. Fuck that shit. I hate when sequels do shit like that. Especially when the sequel's not that good. I don't know. I don't like this movie. It's something that I certainly watched a lot because it was on TV, and I'm sure it has its fans. It's just, you know, there's the first Jurassic Park movie. That's the one to go back and rewatch. I think the rest can be left. I'll also say... Really Jones and... I'll throw this out there, too. Part of the, you know, when when it comes down to it, uh, I watch a Jurassic Park movie for action and kills as well, especially if we're talking the sequels. This particular movie, I found that a lot of the action in this is a little bit too fast-paced for its own good. Um, I don't think uh, Joe Johnston is as good at shooting action scenes, at least in this particular movie, um, as Spielberg. Like It's very clear that Spielberg didn't direct this Yeah. Um, when it comes to the dinosaur-related action. Now, granted, like you know, we're talking about a, the career of somebody where there are multiple examples already within his film career where he is competently directed action scenes and there's more to come. So I'm not saying it's bad by any means, but it's just a bit jarring if you're watching the first two Jurassic Parks and you got Spielberg's very crisp action direction followed by Joe Johnston, who's definitely a bit more green. And, uh, you know, I think part of that could easily be the fact that they were kind of shooting everything on the fly Everyone who worked on this film talks about how, like, it was a miserable process, how they moved so slowly compared to with Spielberg. Um, Like, they were basically, like, designing what they were going to shoot the day of. So, you know, they were talking about sometimes we wouldn't even do a a half a page a day. I could understand a lot of his, where he has directed competently action scenes in the past, being inhibited just based off of the script and the size of this thing. Yeah. Uh, you got anything else to say about it? I- I'm done with Jurassic Park 3. Yeah, no, I'm good. Cool. Next up, 2004, Hidalgo. This one's all you. I haven't seen this one. Have ha- You haven't seen this one? Okay. Oh, God. I really like this movie. I would say, when we're talking about the career of Joe Johnston, this is probably his most Spielberg film. This is a movie that is just literally born on the backs of the Lord of the Rings being a hit. Because you got Viggo Mortensen playing a historical character that likes to ride horses. Uh, and that's what all the marketing was. That was all you need to know. And, you know, the f- film did... It made its budget back. It didn't do incredibly well. Um, but I think it works. Uh, it's based off of a quote-unquote true story about a uh, guy who is a long-distance horse racer and him basically going to a legendary horse race in quote-unquote Arabia somewhere to enter as an American with a Mustang, a not pure breed horse, and doing this giant epic desert race. So that's the framework. That's all you need to know. Um, I say quote-unquote based on a true story because the guy that it's based on was apparently a con artist and never really did any of this stuff. But that's huh. kind of up to interpretation. It is like this movie is directly based off of the memoirs that he wrote. So it's really a question of more whether he's telling the truth or not. Not 
did the writer just make some bullshit up about someone that was loosely in the same time and place. Yeah, okay. But yeah, I say this movie is kind of a Spielberg movie because it is very much a adventure epic film. It's certainly got a lot of that Spielberg Spielberg schmaltz. Kind of leaning back on his like Lucas connection, it is certainly a little bit broad in its historical ethnic stereotypes. And that's a little problematic today, but it's not terrible. But yeah, this movie looks really good. It's a fun uh, swashbuckling adventure thing. Viva Mortensen plays a cowboy who is a descendant of Native American Indians and has that connection to the uh, Native American culture. And so they do a lot of parallels with not only the intricacies of Arabian horse breeding being an American for the uh, metaphor for the American Indian, but also it's a lot of um, a source of a lot of the tension between the characters and helps up the stakes for the race. Because not only do you have this American that's coming into a predominantly Middle Eastern uh, group of people, but then you also have the thing where his horse is a Mustang from America, which is considered an impure breed by people who are like, they portray them as a horse culture where horse breeding is like their thing and one of their big legacies. So you've got him and his horse versus everyone else and everyone else's horses there's there's a little bit there their treatment of him versus the american treatment of the american indians there's a couple interesting parallels going on you just have to get on board with the fact that it's all going to be filtered through horses so it's like but cool this, runnings meets sea biscuit well this movie never feels like uh, i want to I, I don't I hate to put it like this but like you know there are horse people and there are horse people yeah, I don't trust the, the own. Yeah, there are people that own and ride and appreciate horses, and I've never met someone who owns and rides a horse consistently that isn't a cool, interesting person. And then there are people that just like horses, and those are the people that, like, I think give this movie a bad rap because it is not that. You're talking about people. I don't know. I don't know if I 100% agree with, like, hold on. We need to separate horse people and horse people, right? Can we, can we reestablish this? Yeah, I'm, I'm not talking about, like, bronies or anything weird like that. I'm, I'm talking about just there are people that are, like, into horses and have horse calendars and just appreciate that. And they watch, like, Black Beauty a lot. Like, th this is not that girl that you knew in middle school. This is not a movie for them. This is a movie for people that like Lawrence of Arabia and Indiana Jones. Because there are very clear homages to a lot of those films in this. Um, and honestly, I think Viggo Mortensen does a really good job doing that Indiana Jones character. He's a drunk. He's got a lot of uh, sadness and regret in his life, but he's pretty charming throughout it all. And he kind of his inherent darkness as an actor, I think, really fits this character well. So the times where he's not being like Indiana Jones charming, like he still is kind of charming. And um, you've also got uh, the Omar Sharif kills it in this role. And the scenes between Viggo Mortensen and Omar Sharif, I think, are really strong. They have a good chemistry as the most powerful man in Arabia versus this outsider coming in. And they kind of meet on this schmaltzy force middle ground of the, um, the chic-liking Western adventure stories. But it leads to a really interesting friendship and a good understanding between them. That's good. I never watched it because... It looked very deserty, and and I was nervous that it was going to be a horse people movie. 
And yeah. those were the two things, and that's why I never watched it when it came out. I remember this movie, I never watched it. I can say it is certainly a desert movie. I forgot you don't like desert movies. I, I can like desert movies. You generally don't, though. I like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, but that has some other stuff in it. Yeah. Um, I would say, like, this would probably test you for desert movies, but it is not a horse people movie, which was well, your other concern. I mean, that's good. I'll say this. Talking about, you know, it, it looks really good. It's got those epic throwbacks. It's got those Spielberg comedy moments within the action and also within the character interaction. Um, some of the more broad portrayals, particularly of... They give Viggo Mortensen, like, two little sidekick characters... One of them is a goat farmer, and one of them is a um, little slave boy that he buys in the movie. Um, those are a little thick and honestly not the greatest, but I think the rest of it is strong enough um, that even when they throw in a little quasi-love story, it works. Um, also, Viggo Mortensen must have the same writer in his contract that Zoe Deschanel does, because he sings again in this movie. He's never, like, singing a pop song, but he often does, like, a lot of, like, you know, his low baritone singing. Like, in this one, he's doing a Native American prayer song at one point. Um, Weird. Yeah, it's a weird thing with Viggo Mortensen, an actor I really like, but I've never been comfortable with him singing. The things I know about Viggo Mortensen is he likes showing his penis. He does like that. He does not do that in this. Well, this is PG-13, so he can't. There are definitely a lot of... uh, workarounds to that where you know talking about breeding and castration of horses and things like that well i think the rules i think the rules human dicks i I mean you don't see a horse dick in this movie i'm just saying like they have certain sexual illusions in this movie that like are clearly a spielbergian workaround to a pg-13 which i also you know it is what it is but i kind of appreciate it because it reminds me of vintage spielberg so you're saying they're making sexual innuendos, talking about horse dicks? I guess I can lay this out. Um, he is caught in a precarious position that happens accidentally through an act of heroism, but it is perceived as a an offense against the sheik's daughter. So they talk about, like, you know, just like a unfit mare not letting him sow his seed, that kind of stuff. They talk about, like, we're going to cut off your balls for your punishment of this. There's, like, a little bit of innuendo with that, and then there's a bunch of, uh, one of the funny lines that they talk about is, uh, Viggo Mortensen tries, uh, Arabian coffee for the first time, and the guy's like, it's pretty strong, and he goes, well, we throw a horseshoe in the pot, and if it stands up straight, we know that it's good, and later on, they bring that back, and the villain character goes, uncle, I think that would be the only thing that would stand up straight at your age. Like, there's little allusions to sex in general. Yeah. Nice. Well, no, good for Hidalgo. Yeah, and in a PG-13 movie, you don't see that all the time. Anyways, that's Hidalgo. I recommend it. I really like it. It wasn't a big hit. Um, I mean, it made $109 million, but its budget was inflated because we're talking a lot of extras, a lot of special effects, which they're good because generally, like, the biggest special effect they had was they had to remove all of the footprints in the desert from the camera crew. So that it looked like it was a, you know, lone person going through the desert. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Bigger budget. Uh, honestly, it's an unfortunate kind of forgotten movie that I think, you know, it's certainly worth a Saturday afternoon watch. Right on. 
so after Hidalgo, unfortunately not being a hit, he kind of falls back into hired gun director status where he does 2010's The Wolfman. He was hired four weeks before shooting started on this movie, um, which is very apparent because uh, this movie was another one that like I think it was delayed two years in its release because of all the problems with production. Um, unfortunately, he had to abandon a lot of stuff to CGI because of the limited pre-production and then post-production there was a lot of issues because he was relying so much on CGI. If that kind of makes sense. There's a causality in there. Yeah, um, yeah it checks out. But yeah, it, it's a remake, uh, or a slight remake illusion expanding on the original. You've got Lawrence Talbot becoming the Wolfman. So you've never seen this movie, right, Nick? No. I've seen the original a long time ago. Yeah, I like the original. This is this is a troublesome movie to talk about. Honestly, it... It comes in the weird spot where they have tried to reboot the Universal Monster so many times, and this, I believe, was kind of a one-off thing. A lot of it was uh, Benicio Del Toro pushed this movie through because he's such a big fan of it, and he plays the lead character, uh, which is also weird because he's doing an English accent the whole time. Uh, But I think he's miscast, which is one of the things that kind of hurts the movie. General thought before we keep going here. Do remakes of these old monster movies ever really work i think the only one that has is the mummy yeah that's that's what i'm thinking too i'm saying generally speaking they'll they'll try to trot one of these out every five years or so and i think the majority of them don't work i was watching um do you ever watch patrick willems no he did a little video on the cyclical nature of these remakes and how they sometimes reflect the times and how in the 90s, right around Bram Stoker Dracula, there was uh, they were trying to do this, but like make them Oscar period films. This is way after that period. And I haven't seen Invisible Man, which I, you know, a lot of people seem to like, but that seems to be a lot looser in adaptation. Yeah. This is in a weird middle ground where they're basically trying to do a, a remake but they're using a lot of aesthetics that honestly I think are the pitfalls of these period turn of the century London movies. They've got too many staples like the insane asylum treatments and the big medical lecture halls. Um, Someone's always in a traveling theater troupe. Um, There are always gypsies. Uh, In this one, they even bring in Inspector Abilene, who is the guy that Johnny Depp plays in From Hell, who was the real guy who worked on the Ripper cases. Yeah. Um, so there's like some weird Scotland Yard stuff. The main problem of this movie is I don't think it knows what it wants to be. And I guess that's kind of why we're having a little bit trouble describing it. It's certainly an origin story for the Wolfman. It leans a little too lightly on the backstory of how he became the Wolfman. I'm just going to say spoilers now because it'll make this description a little bit easier. His father is played by Sir Anthony Hopkins, and it turns out that Sir Anthony Hopkins is the original Wolfman, and Anthony Hopkins, as the Wolfman, kills Benicio Del Toro's brother. Benicio Del Toro has to come home, he tries to find the monster, he gets bitten, and then it's this weird family tension drama between Benicio Del Toro turning into the Wolfman and Anthony Hopkins, who is basically, as a 50-year-old man, being like, you know what? I should have just let the wolfman be a crazy wild wolfman and kill whoever I wanted. 
I hope you join me, son, and realize the joys of this. And then they have to have a big CGI battle in a burning mansion at the very end of it. So, uh, again, they spend some interesting time talking about how Anthony Hopkins became the Wolfman, but that should be its own movie or a larger part of it. They try to establish this family dynamic of the tension between Benicio Del Toro and Anthony Hopkins, but then Anthony Hopkins just kind of like, I love you, son, but I'm going to abandon you to the insane asylum to get tortured, all kinds of stuff like that. It just, it never is clear. It should be, in my mind, based off of Hugo Weaving, who plays Inspector Abilene. And they hmm. set him up at the very end of this movie to be the guy that carries the sequel, and I think that's the movie that they should have made. Because he's the big English detector that is brought into, I guess you would call it upstate England, to the moors, wherever the fuck that Anthony Hopkins lives, to investigate the Wolfman killings. And he thinks, you know, having worked on the Ripper case, it could be a man with lunacy, someone who has the same characteristics and personal history as you, Benicio Del Toro. Maybe you're my prime suspect. But then that kind of gets abandoned and pushed to the back. And then at the very end, they bring him in again. So, like, they should have focused on Hugo Weaving, in my mind. Emily Blunt is also there. There's a love triangle happening with Benicio Del Toro, Benicio Del Toro's dead brother, and his dead brother's fiance Emily Blunt. And uh, they also throw in some lore about, you know, someone who only loves him can cure him of the curse. Uh, apparently they did, like, three or four different endings of this movie because they couldn't figure out what it wanted to be, and they just chose one. So I think this is a severely flawed movie. I think that monster movies in general, when you're talking about these classic monster movies, you know the ones that came out in the 20s and 30s, where you know seeing the the creation of these creatures on screen in and of itself was a major part of the film experience, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone had had, however, they pictured this thing and this was an audience getting to view it for the first time and that is why they're remembered so fondly i would think and so i think modern adaptations of them end up sort of coasting off of the a certain nostalgic nature but not really bringing a lot of new intrigue to the table and that's part of the reason why i think most of them fail this sounds like another example of that it seems like they were trying to do their own new spin on this thing, but at the same time, it's like, what's the actual reason why this movie needs to exist? Is it just trying to rehash a thing that was really cool 80 years ago? It seems like a passion project for a couple of people that really liked The Wolfman. Um, sure. And I'll say this, it also... You talk about bringing something new to the table. I think that because of the rough production that we know this movie went through, it's possible that Joe Johnston probably tried to bring something there, but when you watch it in its theatrical release, it very clearly has some studio editing because there's a lot of just... There's a lot of very big, clunky exposition dumps that happen in odd locations. Uh, Apparently, they cut, like, a decent amount out of this movie to make it go faster and so you get to the first transformation of the wolfman i i don't i don't know if it would be better if we would see his full director's cut i just think it's one of those things you know he was brought on four weeks before they started shooting they probably should have scrapped this and saved a lot of time or invested the time to let him bring his vision to life it's interesting because more the more that we've 
keep going down the Joe Johnson rabbit hole, it, it seems to me that he's the mop-up guy. Very similar to like, it's a it's a term, a, a mop-up reliever is a term in, in baseball where there's a relief pitcher that they bring into the game when the game is already lost. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, it's somebody, or, or already won, but it's a pitcher that you bring in when you don't need somebody to necessarily do particularly well. You just the need game somebody the that can get it done, right? Yeah. You can just get through the thing. And when you're talking about the Wolfman and all the studio issues there, talk about Jurassic Park 3, you're talking the Page Master, there's a decent amount of this dude's career where he's literally just like, he's a body who can direct this movie, and despite all of the huge problems that the studio is having with it, he can run it competently enough where it gets done. And that's... It's interesting to be looking at a director like this. Yeah, also, I I find it a little sad because I think, as we kind of said at the beginning, the times where he gets to shepherd his own thing all the way through, I think it generally turns out pretty good. And I have to say, I like The Wolfman. Uh, this is the third time that I've watched the 2010 Wolfman. So there's clearly something to it. I, I just don't think it's particularly good. I think it's more of just like if you're tired of watching the one from the 30s and you want to check out something that isn't wolf starring uh jack nicholson maybe try this on yeah well the next movie he did is a is a success kind of well it is certainly a success it is not the success in comparison to others um so joe johnston was brought in to do captain america the first avenger in 2011 so Marvel is not where Marvel is now. This is the beginning of the MCU. So he's certainly having the limitations that, uh, like, John Favreau ran into with Iron Man 2, where he certainly has to get from point A to point B by the end of this movie. But, I mean, there's a lot of style that he's bringing to this movie that you don't necessarily see in the MCU in later incarnations. First off, it's a period piece. It's not a period piece like they claim Captain Marvel is a period piece because it's the 90s. Like, this is a movie that... 95% of it takes place in the 1940s. So it's got an interesting visual aesthetic to begin with, just of it being in the time period. Then you've also got things like, you know, he puts a giant um, musical number in the middle of it. Um, there's a really good mix of exposition where they use, like, the musical number to dole out things like that. And then some clunkier stuff where, like, clearly, like, oh, yeah, we have to give the backstory of the bad guy because not everyone's familiar with the Red Skull. So let me just give it to Stanley Tucci for an exposition dump. Uh, So it's a mix of things like that. They are certainly taking advantage of the CGI where this was the movie where they shrunk Chris Evans' body down. And I think it's clear that maybe this was one of the reasons why Joe Johnston was chosen, his experience with special effects. They had to film all of that stuff four different times to make the shrunken Chris Evans body. So I, I, I think that's maybe one of the reasons why, you know, the last two movies weren't big hits, but this is a guy that we trust. He's a steady hand. He has an understanding of this. Let's give him that. Um, the other thing is there's a lot of iconography that you see going back in his career all the way to, you know, Rocketeer and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, where he understands this. And this movie has a lot of like, splash page looking scenes. And I, I think it generally looks pretty. There's certainly a, like, 2D cartoon element to the comedy in the film. I don't think they quite understood what Chris Evans' strengths were yet. Uh, 
and unfortunately too much of the side plot revolves around Bucky where you've got this really great mix of side characters playing the Howling Commandos. It reminds me of Atlantis where like everyone has a different nationality and a distinctly different job and they're headed up by Neil McDonough and Neil McDonough is just so much more interesting than Bucky Barnes. <laughs> I, it's Captain America. It's the first one. This was a movie that like, you know, it, it's certainly an outlier in the MCU just because it's period and just because it's early. I think it does the job well. It was not the, you know, right after Captain America and the first Thor and the second Iron Man is where the Marvel movies start making almost a billion dollars every time, including overseas. This was one of those in that very early cropping that was a success but wasn't like the giant money machine. Well, it's laid the foundation, right? I mean, it's, you know... It, it certainly did. You need, a, you need a movie like this to lay the foundation. I'll also clarify that, well, you know, well, as we've well discussed, I'm not the hugest superhero movie guy. I will say that uh, the Captain America is... That might be my favorite MCU movie that I've seen. Really? There's something about the period piece nature of it, and just in terms of... You know, I I think origin stories are are the kind of thing that it, it's it makes sense that uh, superhero movies have started working their way towards phasing them out a little bit. Uh, this particular origin story really works for me, uh, and I really enjoyed watching weird looking skinny Chris Evans grow into Captain America throughout the you know throughout the course of the movie. And uh, yeah, I I really enjoyed it. Just you know, kind of. For for what it was, uh, I thought the action was good. Um, I thought Red Skull's not my favorite villain in the world, but like I think he's good. Yeah, overall, like I I really enjoyed this in terms of uh, in in terms of MCU movies that I've seen. Gotcha. And honestly, for me, uh, the reason that it's not ranked higher is just the ending. Like the late third act just feels really rushed. It feels like that's where like all of the studio notes came back to bite them. Mm. You can start to see the editing gets a little bit rougher. You can see that you know the villain is defeated relatively quickly with relative ease, basically because of his own hubris. So it's not the most satisfying thing. It's basically like fuck, we gotta get Captain America in the plane to get him in the ice. Yeah, Let's just fucking go and go and finish it. It stands on its own. It's the kind of movie that you can that. Providing the MCU never existed and this just exists in a vacuum as its individual thing, it would still be a good movie. And to be honest, when we're talking about, you know, large cinematic universes and that sort of thing, there's times where I don't think that's the case and the movies are popular. You know, where a movie couldn't stand alone on its own if it wasn't for what the universe has been building, right? This, to me, works. Um, I would say, I think you're in my camp on this of, I'm just not a big fan of the steampunk aesthetic. Like, I, I know that that's not the movie's fault. That's kind of what you, the <laughs> source material dictates. You hate it more than I do, but yes, I, I, okay. I, I sympathize. I, I will say this isn't as bad as some other things. Like, this isn't, what is that terrible Zack Snyder movie? <laughs> uh, uh, Sucker Punch? Yes, this isn't Sucker Punch levels, but there are certain times where it wears thin on me. But I don't think that's Joe Johnston's fault. Bye. Let's do Zack Snyder on this show. Just shit yeah. on Sucker Punch for 30 minutes. So let me talk quickly about his next one, because uh, it's, it's weird. Uh, I couldn't find a lot of info on it. It is an indie movie that he released in 2014 called Not Safe for Work. 
this is the strangest thing I think in his filmography because it is a tight, simple indie thriller. Uh, it's starring the guy who was the in the Social Network. They were the Winklevoss twins, and then that other guy. Uh, he also was in uh, Horns with Daniel Radcliffe playing the bad guy there. Like he was one of those guys in that era that like. They gave him a couple leading roles and big supporting roles to see if he was going to pan out into a thing. Do you know who I'm talking about? No. Not off the top of my head. Uh, his name is Michael... Uh, no, uh, Max Minghella. Huh. Max Minghella. Um, he was in... Do you remember The Darkest Hour? That was like... he was. Yeah, it, it was an Emile Hirsch movie where he played like number two or number three. He was in that group but never really quite materialized into a better actor. Hmm. Um, Sounds this like the kind of guy who would start in India in 2014. Yeah, this was one of his last shots um, as a leading role. And it's pretty simple. It is a young paralegal who he fucks up at work and he gets fired. He's cleaning out his uh, desk late at night and he ends up trapped in there with a hitman. That's basically the premise. That's it. Uh, they add in a little too much extra plot about, like, you know, who hired the killer, the bigger conspiracy with a giant pharma company, bullshit. Like, none of that matters. Like, it's a very simple premise. It's shot on the cheap, very effectively. I just don't know, like, what drew him to this. You know, I think he would have had a little bit of cachet with Captain America and the First Adventure. He could have probably cashed that into something bigger. Because this is just a forgettable thriller that you see on Amazon Prime and maybe you turn on. Hmm. It, it, it certainly isn't the greatest script in the world, uh, mainly because they botched the bigger conspiracy thing that they don't really need. It's enough to just have a thriller with a hitman who was hired by a big bad guy to attack a legal firm. That's all you need. Uh, they give it a little bit too much, and then at the very end, they kind of fumble that ball and turns out that the bad guy maybe wins because the hero like he, he makes copies of the vital evidence and leaves them in the office and then as he's running out of the building he walks past another guy who's clearly another hitman who starts to follow him and the movie goes to black oh so i don't know it's just it, it's a weird thing for this guy's career this is an odd outlier that i wouldn't recommend you watching i mean yeah the closest thing to a thriller would be like jurassic park 3 and even that, like, that's a creature feature horror adventure film with a weird family subplot. This is just straight up, you know, there are lots of doors with locks that you have to scan, and he's got a, you know, like a maze, avoid the killer. Oh. Uh, yeah. That's, I'm it's good. not very good. I'm good. <laughs> appreciate it, but no, yeah, that's probably not going to be on my list of things to check out. Speaking of things that shouldn't be on anyone's list to check out, the last movie he directed, and he, did, he didn't even really direct it. So, the, this, the movie came out, it was a Disney movie from 2018 um, called the, Nut, the Nutcracker and the Four Realms. This was... A widely released movie, from what I understand. I totally missed its existence. This was like a... This was... Disney threw some firepower behind this. Or at least they were planning on doing it. So it was directed by Lassie Halstrom. Um, and 
it is Who, who's uh, mainly a drama guy, right? Lassie Hallstrom is he was um Gilbert Grape. Yeah. I think he did a couple others in there that are like he was a prestige Oscar director, right? Yeah, his real name is Lars. Um <laughs> but uh but yeah, Lassie yeah, he did some stuff like that. Um I can't imagine his first name is actually pronounced Lassie, but I think we should keep calling him that. Yeah, Lassie, like the dog, you know? Um, but anyway, Lassie Hallstrom did this did this film, um, and they and the studio, which, I mean, it's Disney. The Dis- Disney is the studio. <laughs> but Disney came back after they saw the final cut of this, and they hated it. And so they brought in Joe Johnston to do 32 days of reshoots. Um, I don't know specifically what the reshoots were. However, they brought in a new writer for it as well, Tom McCarthy. Oh wow! I don't know what the original is versus versus this, but Tom McCarthy did not put his name on it. Um, the original writer retained sole writing credit, um, ha- but uh, because of all the work that Joe Johnston did with this movie, they they gave him a co-director credit. Um, the movie itself. Uh, if you're familiar with uh, the the ballet or the story of the ballet of the Nutcracker, um, take all that and throw it away. It's not that. It's not that at all. It is. It, 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 the characters have the same names. It's Clara and Fritz is her little brother. And uh, she's got that uncle that's a toy maker. It's Morgan Freeman. He doesn't do all Drossel that much. Meyer. What? Drosselmeyer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he could be called fucking... Steve, for all I give a shit, like, he's not in this movie, so... Like, he, he shows up at one point, and he's just like, Hello, I'm Morgan Freeman, and they put me in this. And she's like, Hi! And he's like, Alright, cool, see you later, and he leaves. And then he comes back at the end of the movie, and he's like, Oh, is that adventure fun? She's like, Yeah, and he's like, Cool. That's it. Yeah, I, I read somewhere he got top billing for, like, ten minutes or less of screen time. <laughs> he's, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, no, he does not do very much... Um, but basically it's the story of a girl whose mom's dead. The mom gives her a music, like, not a music box, it's a, like a little fucking box of some nature. One way or another, so she's chasing a mouse that has a potential key to this box, and it takes her into a whole other world, like Narnia. And she's in Narnia now, and the mouse, she's got to battle the mouse king, which isn't a, in the original, it's more of a, um, like a, the head of the mice. This is more of an amalgam of multiple mice. It's the, a bunch of mice come together and create a super mouse. Very much like in the Wreck-It Ralph 2. That was exactly Ralphs. what I was about to say. Yeah. Um, so there's that. But then after, I won't even say the mouse is defeated. They just, she and the guy who's supposed to be the nutcracker, I guess, uh, his name's Chief or something. They run away from the Mouse King, and the Mouse King is not even defeated, just, you know, gone. And then uh, there's a bunch of drama in terms of who owns the magical land, whether it be Helen Mirren, whose character is named Mother Ginger, or Kira Knightley, whose character is named Sugar Pop or some shit. Mm. And, so uh, they're kind of grafting a Narnia thing with the characters in the ballet. Because Mother... I'm pretty sure Mother Ginger is the name. Like, there is a character from the ballet that is that. Yeah. Because the Sugar the, Plum Fairy. Well, the second... The second... Yeah, Sugar Plum. That's her name. Yeah, sorry. 
I should have <laughs> just stuck the original. But, um, yeah, they're there. But, like, the, the whole thing with the Sugar Plum Fairy and... Like the whole second act of the ballet is, is very much... Like, the conflict ends in the first, at the end of the first act. And then the second act of the Nutcracker is mostly just, like... Candy. Going to different places. Just candy yeah. coming out, you know? It's candy dancing. <laughs> yeah, well, they gotta they gotta go to all the different worlds, too, where they... Like, there's the Arabian section, there's the... It's not Chinese section, but I know they dance with the umbrellas. They do stuff. There's a snow ballet. There's not much dancing in this. This is this is more of a fantasy adventure. Um, yeah, it sounds like a Narnia to me. Yeah, it's very Narnia, and the, the different... It's, it, it's, you know, Mother Ginger versus Sugar Plum. And they're going to battle it out, and Clara has to make a call. Reasons the movie... So things about this movie that are notable. Uh, it does look really good, and it's scored well. So it's a pretty movie that sounds nice. Beyond that, it is it is soulless trash. There is <laughs> there is nothing like there is nothing original or interesting about it in any way. It is just Disney going, oh, so let's do a Christmas movie, and here's a Narnia thing, and uh, uh, it's they, you all right? You want to all right? I'm gonna give a reveal for this movie because this movie sucks. So she she spends the movie trying to open this box. That her mom gives her. Like, it's the whole reason she's in Narnia or whatever. She eventually opens the box. Oh, the box is... Sorry, I should have clarified. The box is the key of what she'll need to defeat the thing or whatever. Like, it's established that way, but without it being defeat. But you get the fucking point. Anything you'll ever need is in this box. So they're battling. She opens it. And it's a mirror. Because what she needed the whole time was herself. You can't see me doing the jacking off hand, but that's what I'm doing right now. That's what I mean, like, it's the... Fuck it. It's the, it's like, it reminds me of, like, the Hunchback of Notre Dame 2. Which is the directed video sequel to the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And I'm out. It's a, well, no, it's the, it's the, it's the, there's a special bell, and... The reason that it's this most special bell is because there's a bunch of diamonds and rubies on the inside of it. Because the beauty's on the inside. Like, like the Hunchback of Notre Dame taught us, or whatever. And, like, it's shit like that, where it's just like, this is Disney at their worst. It's just them, like, shoehorning some, in theory, a good message, but doing it in the least clever way imaginable. And... You know, just sort of... It, it, the entire movie just comes off as a movie that, that is just shout out to see what kind of Christmas following they can get in 2018. The lead actress, Mackenzie Foy, she does... Uh, she's been in some other shit. Um, in this, not that good. Uh, very one note. Mm. She's an old enough child where the performance shouldn't be one note. You know, I, I would say that... I well, even the Even the people in the movie, like... Kira Knightley's trying to have fun. I won't say she's good, but, like, she's at least doing something different. Helen Mirren's collecting a paycheck. Um, yeah. It's a pretty movie with a good score, though. Like, it's a great movie to put on in the background while you do Christmas decorating. Okay, uh, I have a couple questions for you now. Yeah. Um, the first one, Kira Knightley. Am I wrong? Did they have to ADR all of her dialogue? Because I feel like I remember 
they released an original trailer before this movie was pushed back, and she talked like she was on helium. Oh, no, no, that's how she sounds in the movie. Oh, God. Yeah. No, total helium. Well, that's what I mean. Like, she made a bold choice. It's not good. All right. Um, were you able to find anything about the whole Joe Johnston taking over? Because everything that I read said it was an amicable takeover because Lassie wasn't available due to a scheduling conflict. Well, yeah, it was the studio needed needed heavy reshoots because they didn't like the product. Mm-hmm. And so they hired a new writer to do it. Lassie would have done it, but Lassie was doing something else. So Joe Johnston, and again, we're talking about his role as the mop-up director. That's what I'm calling him now. And, and mm-hmm. like, yeah, he's a great person to do it because he can get this shit done one way or another. Okay. But yeah, it's it was it was amicable, but the studio, like, the reason the reshoots were needed was because the studio didn't care for the product. That is for sure. I'm curious what the original one was like. Cause, so we kept saying Narnia. Let me ask you this. Is it closer to the Narnia movies, or is this trying to be more like Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland? Because the way you were saying about Mother Ginger and Sugar Plum Fairy battling, that I almost got that vibe more than Narnia, the first Narnia with the White Queen. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you could... You could I, um, to clarify, I'm not super into either of those series, so I, I could make the comparison to either... Oh, okay. I'd imagine it's probably closer to Alice in Wonderland, though. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, that's upsetting. So, yeah. But <laughs> we can talk about what he's working on right now, because he has a very big product in pre-production right now. Go for it! So he is... They are rebooting Honey, I Shrunk the Kids now that Rick Moranis has come out of retirement. And it is going to be Josh Gad playing Rick Moranis' son, who is now taking over the crazy inventor role. And we assume that Rick Moranis has signed on. He's coming back. So I don't know if they're going to shrink the grandparents or if they're all going to shrink themselves or something, but Josh Gad and Rick Moranis are doing a Honey, I Shrunk the Kids 4. So here's the thing. I'm excited about it because I want Rick... I want to see Rick Moranis do stuff again. I miss Rick Moranis a lot. That movie sounds terrible. (laughs) Well, I'm also kind of excited about it because it seems like he is shepherding this project. You know, it's based off of something that he originally did. Hopefully he has a little bit more authorship of it. Maybe it turns out a little bit better. This isn't just a mop-up production for him. I mean, it's not, uh, but I don't know. I think I just don't like Josh Gad, so that's that's a thing. That hurts, but I think he can be used in the right way. It just generally doesn't happen. I cannot imagine this movie uses him in the right way. In what scenario is Josh Gad going to be used in the right way in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids 4? If they make him more of a straight man dealing with letting Rick Moranis as old Bumbly, his character from the first one, if they give it that father-son dynamic where Josh Gad doesn't have to be the big broad comedian, I think maybe that'll work. Let Rick Moranis handle more of the silly Disney family jokes. Let Josh Gad just kind of be a charming, funny, straight guy. I think it might have a chance. We'll see. I, if if you could bet on whether a movie would be good or not in Vegas, I'd be betting. I'd be betting the under. Uh, but you know, we'll see. I think it'll make money. I think it's one of those pieces. I. I Is it going direct to Disney enough. Plus? 
Probably. I, I didn't read anything about that, but that could be. I, I feel like I read that was going direct to Disney Plus, but I don't, I don't recall. Do you know, did you read something, was it direct to Disney Plus like Mulan where they're going to charge us 30 bucks to see it? Or no. Is it I mean, going to be one of their movies? It's just going to be one of their movies. It's a nostalgia piece. Like, yeah. I, a theatrical release for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids 4 wouldn't do well. I think it might. Like, let's assume that we're in a normal world and theaters are open again and stuff. I think it's that piece of IP that people recognize but don't have like a super strong attachment to that it could work. It's a sequel no one asked for. The Honey, I Shrunk the Kids property is seen a lot. I mean, even even I who defended it at the beginning of this review, right? Like, I give it a three. It's not like I'm jonesing for a, another Honey, I Shrunk the Kids movie. You know? Now, how much play do you think that the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids series gets on Disney Plus now? If it had a theatrical release, like, the best hope you can do have is that, well, it's a kids movie and you, parents gotta take their kids somewhere. But like, Parents gotta take their kids somewhere and parents remember the original movie so they think it'll be fine. I mean, I would go see Shrunk over let's say in a, this hypothetical world, they also released Artemis Fowl to theaters, that piece of garbage. Well, sure. Another piece of IP that I remember as a kid. There's also a decent amount of movies that, that kind of coast off of older nostalgia that have gotten theatrical releases and then like just completely bomb because their That's sequels true. no one asked for, right? Like, how well did Dumb and Dumber 2 do, you know? That's a very special case, though, because that movie was so flawed to begin with. Yeah, it's very uncomfortable seeing Harry and Lloyd act like Harry and Lloyd when they're 60 years old. That's That dimension. same argument can be made for Rick Moranis as Wayne Zielinski. I don't know. I, I think he could be charming. You just said that's dementia. You just you just said in that other scenario, that situation is dementia. This could easily also be dementia. But Rick Moranis <laughs> never acted like... He was never dumb. No, he's he's always been a bumbling scientist in that series. That's what he does. Yeah. He's but like bumbling he's, old scientist works. I think Shrunk could be closer to something like Flubber. The movie also didn't do well. <laughs> I thought Flubber did well. I don't think so. You know what? We got look a that up. Look that up. There's no rules here. You can edit out whatever you want. <laughs> Flubber made a budget of eighty million, made a hundred and seventy-eight million dollars. And spawned some other side projects. So yeah, Flubber, Flubber was a big hit. I wouldn't call that a big hit. I'd call that a moderate success. Oh, it has a 24% approval on Rotten Tomatoes. That that makes sense. I don't remember Flubber fondly. But that's, a you know, taking a piece of old IP, digging it back up, though it doesn't have a lot of attachment. It's at least like, my dad was like, I remember Flubber because I remember the Absent-Minded Professor or whatever their original was called. But that's, I mean, that you're talking about Flubber, which we came out in, what, 2000 or late 90s or whatever, and the, the original IP is from the 60s. It's a big difference than, you know, 1989 versus now. I think that's 60s to 97, so it was a 40-year difference. 89, we're, we're talking about a 30-year difference by the time it comes out, maybe a little bit more. I think there's an argument that could be made that it's like there's there could be a couple of parallels. Though Flubber is not a direct sequel, that's where the argument has its little asterisks. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, Flubber's Flubber's more of a remake. Yeah, 
So who knows? I don't know. I, 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 I wish the best for Joe Johnston because I feel like he's made a great career being the mop-up guy, but I think there is a distinct difference between the things he gets to shepherd on his own and their quality level. Yeah, it's just... The rest. This is a really interesting career to go through for me because, like, of a lot of the people that we've talked about, like, I, I can say pretty definitively that I don't like a lot of Joe Johnson's work. But after having this conversation... I like Joe Johnston. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, so, I don't know. Like, if you talk about... To me, I, like... Uh, uh, when we're... All right, let's do our wrap-up. Yeah, let's wrap this up. Best, best, worst, and hidden gem. So, for best... I, I have to... I have to go Jumanji. Oh, hands down, Jumanji. There's no... There's no question about that. Jumanji's the best one. Um, yeah. Worst... Yeah, I gotta go with the Rocketeer. I still just hate it. I think I'm gonna go not safe for work just because it's... It's one of those movies that kind of falls into the absence of good. It's kind of the absence of anything. It, it, like, I don't think it's necessarily a bad movie. It's just so mediocre, it's painful. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes sense. Not, not, Nutcracker in the Four Realms is sort of in that category, too. It was a, a close second to the Rocketeer, but... I just have much more of a negative reaction when I hear Rocketeer as opposed to Nutcracker in the Four Rounds, which I'm going to forget I watched in, in a few months. <laughs> I don't have a hidden gem. I don't have one. Sorry. I know that sounds like a cop-out, but I don't. I'm, I'm going to give mine a tie since you don't have one then. Because um, sure. I think Hidalgo is certainly more popular, but still, like, it, it really, it's a movie that has been forgotten by everyone. And, you know, it, it only could have happened in that little pocket where Viggo Mortensen could open a movie to $100 million. But I, I think it certainly has its merits. Um, and then the other one being October Sky, which is the real hidden gem, because not a lot of people saw it, except for apparently my sixth grade science class. Um, yeah. But it's a really heartwarming movie. I really wish that it had a little bit more TV rerun. I think it would have been like in that camp of remember the titans like you know it was around that time and probably would have been one of those that like a great live action movie that gets shown on family tv a lot we'll give we'll give mine like it is an abc family film we'll give mine to october sky because i need to rewatch it anyway so you sold it really well cool but yeah that'll do it for a career in film yeah, join us next week when we discuss... <laughs> when we discuss podcast. Yeah. I am podcast. I am podcast. You can find me on Letterboxd and Twitter at Zach D'Antonio. You can find me on Letterboxd, probably. Uh, Nick Teresa is my name. Podcast is my game. Yeah. Uh, everyone stay safe out there. Have a great week. Yeah, I hope things go well for you, dear listener. Bye. Cool. See ya.